Come on, YouTube. You can do it. All right. In theory, we're live. Hey, Casey, how's it going? Very well, and how are you? Good, good. Uh, I, we, I guess we talked, it was a couple of years ago, actually, last time we, last time we chatted, and a lot of the things that we talked about are, are well on their way. So uh, it's kind of interesting to sort of do a catch-up on the conversation that we had a couple of years ago as, as uh, Starship was still a sort of hope in Elon's eye, and now here we are, them mostly not exploding. Uh, I guess they're mostly exploding. <laughs> Some are occasionally not exploding. Um, but who are you? Uh, just for people who like don't recall our last conversation, who are you? What do you do? Yes, to those of your uh, listeners who remain blissfully ignorant of my existence, um, uh, my name's Casey Hanlon. I'm a PhD in physics from Caltech uh, sometime in the last decade. I work at uh, JPL, which is a NASA center in Los Angeles, but of course... Uh, here and in my other appearances uh, online, I speak only for myself. Um, NASA has many professional <laughs> communicators whose job it is to disseminate the official point of view. And, yeah. um, and they're, they're very happy for us to go off and share our enthusiasm and, and uh, excitement about this sort of stuff. Uh, but I have to be very clear that the, the, the cost of that bargain is, is that uh, I'm officially some guy on the internet with an opinion. Um, right. So... So that's no, that's what we're here for. No, that's a not a, not you, your blogger, Casey Hammer, not uh, NASA JPL um, developer. Well, if it makes your listeners feel better, very few people at JPL uh, take my opinion seriously either. Uh, you know, officially, <laughs> as well as well they shouldn't. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I've only been there for three years. I'm still a, a yeah. new guy. Just just shut up and code. All right. If <laughs> 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 only. Yeah. Um, cool. So, uh, man. All right. So I'm just going to start with the idea that you proposed that kind of blew my mind. And so I want to I want to dig into this, which was you have a radical idea on how to deal with space junk. Powdered sugar. Powdered sugar. Yeah, that's that's an old one. What's it's actually it turns out it's one of these ideas that um, is such a good idea. Someone else had it a long time before I did. Yeah. OK. OK. Um, and in fact, it's a variant of the idea has been um, is patented by, I think, the, the Office of Navy Research or something. Um, man, it's it's really complicated and technical. Um, it's just it's kind of hard to explain. But because like people's like it's like natural intuition for these subjects is is um, very hard to develop or very easily. So people are very easily led astray. Um, but I suppose like you know, generally speaking, for every Hundred kilometers further up, you go. The space junk lasts for ten times longer. So, um, right. So yeah. something that's you know thrown off the side of the space station might deorbit in less than a year. But if it was a hundred kilometers higher, it would take ten years. And if it was two hundred kilometers above the space station, it would take a hundred years. And and very quickly you start to run into thousands and tens of thousands of years and so on. And meanwhile, the available space for things to be in you know grows a bit, but not not nearly as quickly. So the odds of having Kind of a chain reaction of collisions uh, goes up and by the time you're at you know a thousand one hundred kilometers or so which is the altitude of the iridium satellites and and really the highest density of space junk stuff up there can stay up there for a very very long time um and it's it's a real worry i mean it's not not quite the same as the movie gravity as much as i love that film um right. and um you know and like even in the in the ultimate worst case scenario you could still operate satellites you just have to operate them you know fairly close to the earth where there's not as much space junk because it all gets uh, deorbited by the atmosphere, um, which is kind of, you know, one of the good things about the ISS being in such low orbit. We do have to reboost it all the time, but at the same time, you know, there's less space junk than there might be if they were. If still, there's still enough to give them the odd bad day, but there's uh, less space junk than otherwise. Um, and so the reason that the amount of space junk kind of drops off as you get closer to the Earth is that is that it gets uh, swept out, particularly. Uh, smaller, lighter particles. So, if you think of something like a, a plastic bag, um, you know, not that there are plastic bags floating around in space, but something like a plastic bag has a lot of surface area, not much weight. So, you know, if it just kind of gets swept along by the wind. Something like that would get deorbited very quickly. Whereas something like a, a, a shot, like a cannonball or something, um, has has a lot more density and a lot less surface area. So, that would um, be capable of of, uh, of staying up for much longer, or alternatively, orbiting for much longer at any given altitude, or alternatively. Uh, orbiting stably at a lower altitude than, than any others. And in fact, 
there are some more or less radical uh, proposals for satellites that are basically like long, spe long thin spears of uh, dense metal that are able to orbit at extremely low altitudes because they, they don't have much drag relative to their momentum. So all this was kind of percolating around, percolating around in my head. And the challenge with uh, space junk is, is not so much that there's, there's no way to fix it. There are plenty of ways of fixing it. The problem is that uh, you want to find a, a way that's where the cure is better than the disease. Um, and, and so, for example, some ideas where the cure is maybe not as bad as or sorry, the cure is worse than the disease um, would be things like uh, setting up lots of like space shuttles to like yeah, grab yeah. big chunks and bring them back down, which is actually something that the space shuttle was kind of designed to do in the first place. Um, but uh, well, the space shuttle uh, was never able to fly right. up high enough to get but, you know, the iridium satellites down. Sure, but still a, a billion dollar mission to retrieve a, a, a dropped astronaut glove seems mm. right if, if every piece of space junk you want to retrieve is on its own special orbit you need to match that orbit yes and so you you know at the very cheapest you're looking at a tens of millions of dollar uh grabber robot on top a 60 million dollar falcon 9 launch you're looking at mm. 100 million plus just to grab your one piece of space junk and then this whole apparatus comes back to earth and then you pick your next target 100,000 to go yeah well there's a lot of space junk up there i think the aim of the game would be if you were doing individual missions would be to try and grab the big big dead satellites and deorbit them before they turn into lots of smaller pieces um and actually sometimes uh dead spacecraft just disintegrate anyway like they have an explosion or, or they start to spoil paint chips and stuff like that. So like old stuff in space tends to, you know, gradually fragment. Um, and you, you want to grab those big bits and, and take them away before they can, you know, start feeding this cascade of smaller and smaller particles. Um, then you could imagine, you know, some space, uh, sorry, ground-based laser system that, that shoots these things and either blasts them into little pieces or potentially applies some photon pressure to them, which changes their orbit enough that they right. get close to the atmosphere and burn up. Um, you can imagine, you know, um, swarms of, of small CubeSats that can kind of um, have electric propulsion, so they can do quite a lot of orbital maneuvering and and grab things and then suicide burn them into the atmosphere. Uh, you can imagine things with nets and, you know, sticky wires and stuff like that. Um, the problem with, with all these ideas, as cool as they are, aside from the expense, which is obviously uh, incredibly high, but relative to the, um, say, value that can be directly captured by by pulling a satellite out of out of orbit, unless a government is prepared to hand over n billion dollars a year mm -hmm. to do it, yeah, all of um, it, which means taking it out of someone else's pocket to do that in a way, um, is that it's the sort of technology that that makes um, the other space-faring nations kind of twitchy, um, and necessarily they would also have to develop that sort of technology um, because of right. balance of power and proliferation and stuff. And we've seen this in the past when when the Soviets went and built a space shuttle. Um, for no good reason. They just knew that the US had one and therefore they'd better have one so that when they worked out what it was for, they wouldn't have to then start again from scratch. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, like anti-satellite technology is, is one of those things that, um, generally speaking, everyone in, involved doesn't really want to be like, yes, we should do more of this. Yeah. Um, so with all that in mind, I was, I was kind of thinking about this, this problem and... and um, and as other people obviously have come up with the same idea, um, what what if you could take uh, these these larger chunks of space junk and increase the drag that they experience so that they deorbit more quickly? Um, and you could think of that as um, you know like a skydiver uh, ordinarily can fall at a few hundred miles an hour towards the Earth, uh, but they uh, release a parachute. It increases their surface area, uh, which increases the drag, which lowers their terminal velocity, which causes them to land you know survivably. So you need something like a like a, a parachute. Um, it turns out that there, there are multiple ways of doing this. Um, but the way that really appealed to me was what if you put, you know, more space junk up there, but this space junk was of sort of an intermediate size. So like this space junk was, it's, it's kind of a uh, ballistic coefficient. or it's like mass to surface area parameters were relative to the air molecules, the same as the space junk was relative to these new particles you put up there. Um, and so instead of, having a situation where you've got a cannonball, you know, barreling through space where it hits, you know, a couple of atoms a second, which does absolutely nothing to it in terms of drag. Um, it's instead of plowing through this stream of particles, you could think of like a you know, big dispersed cloud of sand or something. Um, 
and that transfers a lot of momentum um, because when you know big things hit little things, that it transfers a lot of momentum. Um, and then all those little particles of sand then go and disperse and smash into all the air molecules. Um, and so you can think of this as what's called a kinetic cascade, but basically a mechanism that that, that enhances the transfer of energy from from the very large dense particles into the air. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of different ways of thinking about it, but that's the basic idea. And so in terms of the execution, then you need to find particles that that have this um, maximize the the uh, momentum transfer on impact. Um, and so if you think you little hard balls, you could get 2x the momentum transfer. But actually, if you have um, little particles that actually vaporize and then emit you know, superheated gas, you can get like 20x. Um, because it turns out that the kinetic energy uh, at the closing velocities of stuff in space is so high, you can quite easily turn basically anything into a, into a superheated gas. Uh, and this should be intuitively obvious to anyone who's looked at the stuff that comes out of the rocket nozzle that gets right. it into space in the first place. Um, the, the energies involved are kind of high. Um, and so you can actually get about a 20, a 20x uh, factor of, of momentum transfer, which is great. So you get you know 10x extra for, for free. Um, and then you want something that is uh, reasonably biodegradable because these things are all going to end up back in the atmosphere again. Um, and they're not going to burn up because they're so light and fluffy. They'll actually uh, be able to radiate heat faster than the atmosphere is you know, heating them up as they re-enter. Um, and so actually we've seen this before where like, um, you know, if a satellite re-enters and breaks up on re-entry, little bits of um, kapton and uh, mylar and like other fluffy stuff can kind of rain down to the surface intact more or less. You can hmm. pick up little pieces of paper with names and stuff on it. Um, whereas the, the really big, heavy, dense things, well, if they, they sometimes they make it through the atmosphere, like the um, engines and stuff like that. It's a, it's a bit of a crapshoot to be honest. What makes it and what doesn't? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is a, that is a concern for people who are designing satellites to be safely, uh, you know, deorbitable. Um, uh, and so there actually has been a precedent of um, in the '60s, I think, of of launching like millions and millions of little uh, copper wires to try and increase the uh, radio reflectivity of the near space environment. And um, they're actually because they're metallic, they got uh, um, electrically charged from uh, impacts of you know, reasonably low energy electrons from the sun. Um, I, I believe that's the case. Uh, in any case, they, they got charged and they all stuck together, which uh, undermined their efficacy somewhat. So you'd want to try and like put in some kind of anti-caking agent um, so they'd all kind of disperse nicely. Um, and a few other bits and pieces. And I basically was looking around, I was like, okay, and now I need to find something that's on, on the order of 50 micron size, which is you know, about half the thickness of a sheet of paper. Um, you know, standardized, uh, preferably light elements because you get an enhanced... Um, uh, momentum kick, um, and so you're talking like you know hydrogens, oxygens, carbons, rather than like tungsten or lead. Uh, although intuitively you would think that something like lead or tungsten, would, because it's higher density, would work better. But actually, when it comes to launching, you care more about mass than about density. Um, and uh, and then I, then I, and also I want to be able to obtain it you know reasonably cheaply in twenty ton lots because I'm going to fill up you know the, the SpaceX Falcon Nine um, right. payload fairing with it and just like you know then you know, pressurize it and then release it. And it's just going to kind of everywhere. Um, and so it's all very well to be like, oh, well, we'll build a custom ball mill, ball mill for this you know, very fancy, like, you know, borohydride pyrophoric material that needs special handling stuff. And we'll have to build it at, at the, uh, the Pep, is it Pepco, Pepcon plant or something outside Vegas and hope it doesn't you know, do what it's done before. Um, and then I was like, no, actually, you can buy confection and sugar, like, in container-sized quantities, very, very cheaply, and it basically meets, you know, uh, meets the bill. Icing sugar, right? And um, I have to say that this is not an idea that I've subjected to peer review, so your listeners <laughs> should, right. um, but the... should 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 not take it on faith. But I think, you know, it, it'd be a fairly extreme, you know, step to take. But if it was a necessary one, I, I, I haven't yet encountered a way of doing it that would be uh, cheaper or sweeter. <laughs> right. Well, but you needed an anti-caking agent. Obviously, this wouldn't fit the bill on that one because it's definitely a, a caking agent. Um, uh, but would it render space unusable for a while while the icing sugar cloud is deorbiting all the space junk? Yeah, put some icing, some icing on the cake. Yeah. Um, so there's actually some some really nifty things about this and there are papers out there that people can read about this again it's one of these things that i was like i wonder if someone else ordered this oh yeah people have um but um but essentially if you you know you uh can pick the the size of the particle and thus its orbital lifetime and you can tailor that quite 
quite precisely for the for the target orbit. So say you're trying to deorbit debris from Iridium satellite collision, which is one of the major clouds of space junk. It's in a polar orbit, they're all processed, it's all over the place. Um, and say 50 microns is the right size, it goes up there. And all that stuff, because these particles are so, are so small, will deorbit within a year. So, so you know right away that, so even if it's a terrible idea, you only have to wait a year and right. the problem's gone away. Um, but the other thing is that it, it sweeps material ahead of it. So like uh, space junk that's smaller than a certain characteristic size will will be swept ahead of it and will continue to be you know, pushed down into the atmosphere as the whole cloud with this stuff that it's sweeping kind of uh, contracts around the Earth. Um, but it's stuff that is, is beyond some critical threshold size, whatever that is, and that, that can be tuned, um, will experience, you know, uh, collisions and some slowing, but will be left behind. Uh, and so, you know, the cloud will be there and then the cloud will pass by. So, for example, by the time the cloud gets down to the orbit of the ISS, yes, it will, you know, the cloud and the stuff that's in the cloud presumably has the potential to impact with surfaces on the ISS, which are designed to withstand micrometeorite impacts of this scale anyway. Um, and but, but will only be in that kind of right. region and that density for a reasonably short period of time. Um, and by reasonably short period of time, I mean like, it's like, this is not an ideal thing. No, no satellite operator is like, oh yes, I would love to have a whole bunch of volatilized like organic compounds flying around in space. Sign me up, Hanma. Um, yeah. but, but as an alternative to having, you know, tens of millions of hypervelocity chunks of steel flying around up there, or, I mean, you know, there's obviously a, a choice to be made there. Yeah. Um, is you know, violate the spirit if not the letter of the outer space treaty but ultimately like these things it's not like some rogue state is going to be like aha i will sweep all your space junk out of you know, like it's actually like well we've got a serious problem we have to do something about it so is the problem that people have been launching satellites too high i mean isn't starlink you know kind of onto something with launching their satellites mm. very low um yeah. and then letting them clean themselves up after the fact i wonder if how much of of the work that satellites get done these days could be done just at low altitudes? Yeah, it's certainly looking that way. I mean, in the early days, if you wanted to launch a um, a constellation that covered the whole Earth, you would go into a higher orbit because it's it basically costs the same um, for for you know low Earth orbit. You know, between five hundred and two thousand kilometers, it's all the same. But um, but you know, if you're further off the surface of the Earth, you can see more given area. So like the Iridium constellation only needed 66 satellites to cover the entire Earth, whereas um, the you know, Starlink is much, much lower altitude, needs many, many more satellites. Um, and I think the initial initial plans for Starlink were at higher altitude for that reason. But then, you know, obviously, um, there are all kinds of good reasons to go to lower altitude. You need less signal power. You have um, a higher density of customers because the, the beam focusing is less. And then you can also have a situation where if your satellite suffers critical failures you don't have to deorbit it you can just run it until it like literally won't go anymore and then it will it will deorbit and actually one of the nice things about the starlink design i believe is that it's reasonably low drag provided that it's oriented but if it loses control it, it tumbles and then it mm -hmm. increases its drag a lot and then um, as we've seen actually um in the in the orbital tracking of, of the starlink satellites that were doa they um they didn't stay out for very long and they're also launched into very, very low orbits. Uh, so if they if they don't even turn on, they just fall straight back in the ocean within yeah. a couple of weeks. And, and, you know, when you think about every single satellite application that's done today, weather satellites, Earth observation, um, GPS, um, <clears throat> television broadcasting, it feels like all of those applications would be better served at lower altitudes. Like each one of them would do its job better if you could get more satellites at a lower altitude, which ironically would be safer for uh, for for space junk purposes, for us sending people into space and, and other things. Um, th and this is my thinking. And then, you know, you're looking at some of these ideas like these air breathing ion engines would allow you to lower your orbits even further, that you could bring these orbits down. And I've seen estimations that you could bring orbits down to 200 kilometers. Um, mm. You know, you're you're in the middle of the atmosphere this whole time, but you've got this little this air breathing ion engine that's pushing. It's using solar energy. It's pushing against the the it's sucking in atmosphere using this thrust, and it's maintaining some perfect balance. And the second its thruster goes off, it it burns up. It doesn't even make an orbit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm not convinced about air breathing ion engines. I've 
I haven't read much about them recently, but last time I checked, I was like, mm, that seems like a, a fairly long bow. Um, but, but actually, just to come back to your previous point, um, GPS satellites generally operated at, at, um, at mid-Earth orbit, I guess, they're in roughly 12-hour orbits. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the, the geostationary uh, satellites, obviously, um, which are 24 or 23, 56, 23-hour, 56-minute orbits. Um, and they, you know, especially like the weather satellites that are out there and so on and, and, and the Tedris uh, constellations and NATO constellations and stuff like they represent a different business model and one that has worked extremely well. Uh, and, you know, when the GPS satellites were going up in the early 90s, like that was kind of the way to do it. Um, if you if you have a situation where launch is, is cheap and available and the satellite technology is, is cheap and available, then, yeah, I think you can make an argument that well, we, for the next generation of GPS, we could do it with, with you know, 10,000 LEOs, uh, CubeSats that do something around this, that, and the other. It's very, very clever stuff. There's a few papers floating around out there on this sort of thing now, but... yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's still very, very, very conceptual stuff, um, and and I wouldn't expect to see that anytime soon, yeah. um, because the people who are responsible for building and operating these systems uh, have uh, specific mission needs that are uh, met by their current configuration, and they're not particularly cost sensitive. Right. Um, whereas, and actually, in many ways, being all the way out in geo is a good place to be if you, you know, want to make it hard for North Korea to shoot you down. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, although there are, like, again, like, I'm not like, tell you, telling tales out of school that you can, some fabulous YouTube videos and stuff from um, from uh, the Chaos Communications Conference or whatever, people who set up sat, uh, telescopes to look at the various uh, geosatellites that are doing sneaky things up there. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a, a photograph of the Rosette Nebula with... Uh, that uh, Dylan O'Donnell took with star trails passing through it because the rosette is perfectly positioned for geostationary satellites to move right through the field of view. And so those are, <laughs> those are the satellite trails that you get through your nebula. But, you, Elon? Yeah, oh, but it, well, it would, it, would solve the, it would also solve the astronomy problem as well because these things would be so low that they would be in shadow mm. almost instantaneously. So I think we can solve a lot of problems. Why won't anybody listen to me? Anyway, um, now, last time we talked, I want to shift gears here. Last time we talked, sure. you made the bold assessment that there's no possible way to make money in space and that anybody who tries is going to lose everything. Um, Did I uh, say that? that well, you bold. said something like, you know, space power, asteroid mining. No, no. Yeah, yeah. That there's no, there's nothing like, like that isn't just like Earth serving Earth. There's yeah, no communications way. and yeah. um, observation yeah. are, are like demonstrated yeah. business models. Yeah, and I so think. when people say that you navigation could, PNT, yeah. you could mine an asteroid and uh, you know take ten mm. trillion dollars and crash the world economy, blah blah blah. Um, and then since then we've watched uh, again since the last time we talked, we've watched uh, various companies attempting to monetize space struggle and fail. Um, uh, yeah, has... I don't take any pleasure in, in no, 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 no. Or, I mean, or, it's... Um, or what, whatnot, um, yeah. kind of being failing and parting out. Although a few of my friends did did um, pick up some of their their uh, workshop machines and and they've gone on to have another good life, which is right, which is I guess encouraging in some ways. Um, you know, like essentially venture capitalists are indirectly providing fancy uh, machine tools to hobbyists who know what they're doing, uh, but would otherwise have no ability to access them. Um, yeah, I mean, I get asked about this stuff fairly frequently. Um, I don't know why, because um, I'm sure these people know what I'm going to say. But anyway, they say, "Oh, yeah, that's right." Yeah, so well, it, it, it seems like I guess I guess my question then is is just like, has your position has anybody come up with an idea that has changed your mind, or is it still space is the place is 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 like worse than buying a sailboat? Yeah, well, just a just a hole in the in the universe. No, it's that a good, a good sailboat. Into. Yeah, no. I mean, since we last talked, I've kind of been obsessed with zeppelins, and I've been thinking like, because like uh, Sergey Brin's trying to build one. Yeah, and um, and I think they're they're freaking rad. Like, I three D printed one. I can I can pull it out if you, if you want to see it. But um, the, the the problem is like everyone's like, oh, he did one today. We could make it with carbon the carbon fiber, you know, and and we could use helium and stuff, and you know, it would cost five hundred million dollars, but it, would have 
10 times better performance than the Hindenburg and it might not explode. Oh, so, sorry, sorry. And, when, when I say when I say buying a sailboat, sorry, the the uh, a sailboat is a hole in the ocean that you dump money into. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I, yeah. I, and so I, I, grew up, I grew up playing around on them. Right, so right, right. And so you can a, find a way to... And a space... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and a million dollars or less, then, then actually you can start saying, well, like, people can build these in their garage, like a very big garage. Right. Um, and But they can build them for sort of yacht money as opposed to, like, national security right. money. And then people can just, like, punt around in the sky in a Zeppelin, and if they get struck by lightning, well, sure. bad luck. Um, but yeah, no, no, but I'm just so, saying that space, that just space in general as an economy yeah. is a place in the universe that you just dump money into, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, I space think mining, seen, space power... Various all... billionaires, you know, try and do, um, you know, various projects in space that are more oriented towards um, you know, showing off one way or another or, or prestige than, than trying to find a, an, an adequate business model. And I think, you know, Elon, by his own admission, got into this thinking, oh, I'm going to do um, a philanthropic mission. I'm going to spend 80 million bucks and, and grow a plant on Mars. So that was his original goal. Um, and I guess, well, they've made some progress, but they still haven't landed anything or even launched anything to Mars. Um, uh, and actually, I think the Chinese just landed something on Mars. So, like, um, better get on with it, Elon. Um, right. Well, the Chinese Mars grew plants anywhere, on the moon. So they took his they idea. Did. They grew yeah. a little, they grew a pea plant on the moon. Um, I, I think it's probably fair to say that they independently uh, developed that idea. I don't think, I don't think that they they just copied Elon that guy. Yeah. They would actually do well to copy Elon when it comes to booster recovery. I think um, my 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 uh, scalding hot take on that whole like. Um, uh, Chinese booster coming down to burn burn up. It's just like, well, you know, dropping boosters on random parts of the ocean has gone out of fashion in the last ten or twenty years. Um, but, um, but you know, actually, if I, I was the Chinese, I'd be like, well, you know, it'll be like moderately nice to the international community to like, you know, figure out a way of deorbiting this in a controlled way. But actually, it'd be far better to figure out a way of deorbiting it. Like and landing it back at the spaceport so we can use it again because people have been able to do that for, t for six years now yeah. and we still can't. What are we doing? Um, so you know that's like keep your eye on the prize. Like let's yeah. as I, raise the raise the scope of our ambition. Now in terms of in terms of wasting money in space, I've looked in a lot more detail at lunar stuff recently because of the the HLS uh, contract and mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So so I think it's probably a fair criticism to say I'm like jumping on the bandwagon. Um, and you know, I think the really exciting thing is that we actually have a credible path to doing space stations and doing moon bases and Mars bases for kind of like thousands to tens of thousands of dollars per person per you know hour or per day, as opposed to tens of millions of dollars per person per hour. Um, and this is one of the things that kind of put me off a bit about the HLS protest, you know, and Dynetics and the national team were like, oh, there was some problem with the way this contract was procured, which of course there may be. And that's not my, you know, it's beyond my pay grade to decide that. It's also like completely within their rights to protest this and mm -hmm. it's a standing yeah, practice totally. industry. And I get that. But on the other hand, like, let's look at what Bezos is best known for and what made him famous and what made him rich. It was his unerring instinct that the customer is always right. And in this case, NASA is the customer, and they've made it crystal clear that when one of their three bidders came along and said, actually, what you asked for is silly, we're going to sell you another rocket for one-fourth the price that has 10 times the capacity, and no, we won't water it down for you. You can take it or leave it, and we're building it whether or not you give us the money. Right. NASA said, uh, actually, that sounds like a really good thing. Thanks. And then, you know, I can understand that, like, Bezos should be upset that, like, someone else's rocket will be taking humans back to the moon before his. Um, but like, you know, that's water under the bridge at this point, looking forward, doing stuff in a more like, let's do this super cheap. And like, we're just going to maximize tons per year and minimize dollars per ton. Yeah, that's the right way around. Maximize tons per dollar, um, means that, you know, the pie just got a lot bigger for everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like, it's no longer a question of like, well, sorry, Boeing, you didn't even make the first cut which is what cost Doug Lavera his job, right? Like Boeing is back in the game because if Boeing and Lockheed and uh, Athenia, uh, Alenia Space, whatever, Thales, the um, Europeans and the Japanese and and um, Blue Origin and, and all these other contractors like can now think about not having to solve the, you know, $5 billion, oh, shit, I need to build a rocket development program, but they're like, oh, all I need to do is, is like 
build or borrow an enormous space simulator and then just start getting space hardware developed and then suddenly have a reason to recruit really, really smart people straight out of college who would otherwise have no choice but to work for Elon at SpaceX or Tesla. And, and you know, Caterpillar, for crying out loud, should be knocking, beating down Elon's door saying, please, 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 please don't verticalize in like the automated mining and like giant trucks sector. That's ours. We don't want you to ruin it for us. Like Komatsu already almost did. We'll just give you the Rover for free. Um, then, then suddenly all these people can have their hardware driving around on the moon mm -hmm. in, in a couple of years. And they don't have to worry about like, oh, we're going to make it out of titanium that we've milled to a, you know, five thou thickness so it's light enough to fit on the spacecraft they can just take the standard commercial part uh, stuff put on some space grade paint yeah. you know upgrade the electronics a little bit um and and just focus on like executing you know building something like an antarctic station on the moon rather than some like dismal tuna can like the jamestown base in the first season of um for all mankind so that's my that's my <laughs> scalding hot take on all that right well so we're we're like a couple of weeks now after SN15 has flown and landed and mm. as I mentioned not exploded which was quite exciting to see not I yet. mean not yeah. yet yeah no I know I keep saying that people keep now saying, I have to figure out how to get it off the path it didn't, like, it didn't what, explode what, what it? It, yeah it, it hasn't exploded so far um yeah. uh, what are they going to do with it all the others have the decency to just like Disperse yeah. themselves so they can make room for the next. <laughs> <guy>. <laughs> room for the next that was very convenient. Yeah, it was like they needed a they needed a surprise crane. They needed to bring in a crane because they didn't know what to do at this point. No one was expecting. Oh, have you it. seen that crane they're building? My God, it, it is like so, so big. So I mean, now I guess the next for their next trick, they need to demonstrate that they can return from orbit, and mm. and that is the game changer, right? Like up until this point, you're just you're blowing up stainless steel. Uh, grain silos in Boca Chica, but if you mm. take this thing to orbit and you return it from space, and both the the super heavy and the Starship lands successfully, and then you start putting cargo on it, um, can anybody compete with this? Yeah, I think so. So there's there's two things there. The first is um, if they can get it to orbit, that's already transformational, right? Because like even if they it takes them another year to figure out how to get the Starship back and land it reliably or two years say just being able to get you know two three hundred tons up there expendable on a starship platform is huge mm -hmm. it's huge it's like uh, you want a space station to replace the iss with its 600 cubic meters of usable volume well here's a burned out booster with you know four thousand cubic meters of volume sorry we can't make it smaller than that um you know per launch and the thing is like SpaceX is like, well, we can't do this without making, we can't do this affordably without making them reusable. But why not also make them cheap? You know, and they figured out how to make them cheap. So they, they're able to make the Starships, I think, for less money than they can make the Falcons. Mm -hmm. So they're able, they're probably able to offer expendable launches on these things for $50 million, <laughs> which is, I mean, like, that's their internal cost. I'm sure they'd charge other people more. Yeah. But, but, but like, maybe even less. I mean, like, I'd say it's probably around 10 million. It's hard to say at this point because, you know, a lot of these costs are very front loaded. But like, the overall unit costs about $10 million. They can get these things to orbit. They can probably get, you know, a secondary, like a, a third stage payload on something like this can, can easily get, you know, uh, anywhere in the solar system with a somewhat smaller payload. Um, that in itself is transformational. Um, however, if you want to land uh, a starship or, or use a whole starship to take cargo elsewhere and land it on the moon or land it on Mars, you have to do refueling mm -hmm. or refueling of, of oxygen and fuel in low Earth orbit. And I don't think that's really, I mean, you could do it once or twice without reusability, but I think you'd have to be able to rely on reusability to, mm -hmm. to kind of scale that in a meaningful way. Um, and of course, there's also commensurate reduction in cost when that's available, but, um, but it would be, you know, like you can, you can certainly get started without that being right. totally dialed in. It's, there's still enormous utility and, and for, for SpaceX that it's like, all right, we'll just put another 400 Starlink satellites, put up another 400 star, Starlink satellites. Try again, try again, try again. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, so they, they launch 400 Starlinks and then attempt to retrieve the rocket. And if they fail, that's right. then they still made a few hundred million dollars in profit from the additional coverage. Or, or they launch a prototype um, lunar starship and just leave it in space with people right. on board for a while and see how it goes. You right. know, or fly, fly astronauts up there for the Dragon and see how it goes. Test out all the systems because, yeah. you know, the in-space environment in low Earth orbit is a lot more like the surface of the moon than Boca Chica is. Um, so I think that's, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, 
it's it's certainly encouraging. I think the when they set out on this this program probably five years ago in a public sense, uh, four or five years ago, they were attempting to identify and retire like the key elements of technical risk. And I think that they've basically done all of that at this point. There are tier nine solutions available for all the stuff they haven't yet demonstrated. Some of those are expensive. Some of them are a pain in the ass. I'm sure they're trying to find cheaper, better ways of doing them. But even if they can't, even if it's impossible, even if tomorrow they forget how to innovate, they can still like go and build the damn thing. Right. But I mean, but then if they do retrieve these things from space, if they can make them successfully re-enter the atmosphere and land again, so that's almost just icing on the cake at this point. I think I think it's it's very much necessary as part of a long term sure yeah long term plan yeah yeah but it's not it's not necessary to make a transformation in the way stuff gets put into space yeah I just I just don't think I think you know that there'll be there'll probably be failures in attempting to bring back the orbital booster and it'll probably take a while and I think there'll be a, a couple of people who'll be very quick to you know hang a failure sign around the, the neck of SpaceX and be like oh it'll never work you know it's it's failed it hasn't failed like. If they can get this thing to orbit, which at this point I think is probably, probably, um, probably in the bag. I mean, like it's. I don't knock on wood. Um, I don't think it's every everything that they need to put this into orbit. They they do almost every week already. Um, that that in itself would be, you know, pretty transformational. Um, but yeah, if they can get into orbit and bring it back, that's 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 another thing entirely. Um... Elon Elon Musk has said that the that the current star starship is sort of like the the minimum size to make this concept even work, and it gets even better mm -hmm. the bigger you make them. Mm -hmm. Is there a limit to how much rockets the world needs? Like, could they mm. eventually just make one rocket and just call it a day? <laughs> no, I think I think there probably is like a happy medium somewhere. Um, ultimately, when you start thinking about, well, we need to get a million tons of cargo on the surface of Mars, um, probably the practical limit is is how quickly you can build and and roll out uh, launch facilities on the surface of the Earth. Because, you know, um, Pache, like, I, I think you could probably make an argument that you could you could have launch facilities in places other than eastward facing near um, equatorial coastal areas if these things are as reliable as they need to be to make this worthwhile, uh, but they still have to be in reasonably isolated locations. Um, and, you know, it still involves a lot of concrete and a lot of local procurement of fuel and oxidizer and, and logistics. Um, but yeah, you know, you could, you can imagine launching a couple of thousand of these a day. Um, I mean, this prior to COVID tens of thousands of commercial aircraft flights mm -hmm. in the United States every day. Um, and if, if you kind of just I penciled out, oh, we're going to build, you know, a Boeing 737 or an Airbus, Airbus, and of course, yeah, we're just going to fly them over cities and and like put them down on, you know, we'll just make a long skinny strip of asphalt so it'll come down and take off. It'll be fine. No worries. Sometimes the wind blows the other way, but we can figure out what to do. Um, people would be like, oh, I think you'd probably better do that, like, you know, a long, long way away. But, yeah. You know, it's it's we've got it down to a science now. Um, yeah. And so I think you could make an argument that, that starships could be um, flown some way. Actually, so. I just remembered you asked before, are we in a situation now where no one else can compete? And mm -hmm. the answer is, um, no, I, I think that, and this is, this is again, something that kind of, when I'm thinking about like, what does Blue Origin do now? I, I'm reasonably sure that like New Glenn is not really in production, right? I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that like, they've got a, a mock-up in that factory, but they're not actually, they haven't actually got the tooling necessary to build these at any kind of rate. They don't have the technicians trained. They haven't solved the technical problems. This thing is still a long way away from being put up at the launch site and launched into space. And even if it wasn't, it's now reasonably clear, you know, in the same way that this was a great idea five years ago and SLS was a great idea 20 years ago, that, you know, its day has passed, really. Um, but this is not necessarily bad news for Blue Origin. There's many other problems that are, need to be solved between now and when Starship becomes fully operational and will now have an absolute unsatisfiable craving for cargo that it can like put into space um the other thing is that like so they can just the... put new glens inside starships and fly them well to space. i mean but, but like space stations for example like it's, it seems reasonably clear to me that that um that elon is not that interested in building space stations but someone has to why not and blue origin seems to think that's a good idea mm -hmm. um 
but um, but one of the amazing things that SpaceX generates, in addition to all these cool rockets and stuff, is a constant stream of ex SpaceX employees who are like withered, burned out husks of their former self, but um, but know all these amazing things. And so, really, all anyone who wants to compete with SpaceX has to do is wait until the Starlink, sorry, until the Starship design is more or less finalized and the kinks have been worked out of the system and then go and hire half a dozen people who built it and be like, make me a copy. Right. And then they don't have to, a, they don't have to live with the early design mistakes that were made that, that SpaceX had to work around. So they can like clean shit design, fix all the problems they wanted to fix the first time around, you know, obviously being careful to avoid putting in too much extra stuff. Um, and B, they don't have to bear the $5 billion development cost, right? All they have to do is be like, yeah, we'll just copy that one. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, it's, I make it sound simple. It's not simple, but it's a lot yes. easier than doing it for the first time. Um, and, you know, at that, at that point, you know, I think you could, you could plausibly see a lot of other entrants come into the space, particularly given that, you know, we now know that the cost of building these really giant rockets is not necessarily any higher than building a smaller one. Mm -hmm. um, and... Yeah, the, the really expensive, hard, long lead items are the really high-performance rocket engines, but they're only necessary if you want to do single-stage return from the surface of Mars back to Earth, which is not everyone's cup of tea. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that the you know we'll probably see like SpaceX have a couple of cushy years where there's not much in the way of competition, but then you know I would be very surprised if the Chinese and the Russians at, at any length didn't didn't copy it straight away and the Europeans eventually get around to realizing that something has changed. Mm -hmm. uh. Yeah. Well, the Chinese actually, uh, there was a mock-up. I don't know if you saw this uh, Chinese, there was like a Chinese state um, rocket company posted mock-ups of their Starship clone already. So mm. that's the only one we've seen so far from any rocket company at all. And, mm. you know, they haven't even really perfected the technique of, well, they haven't at all perfected the technique of reusable first stages, even though they're starting to make their first stages look very similar to the Falcon 9. Um, they could very well be just trying to skip and, and go straight to, to a Starship version. But I, but I think you're right. I mean, mm. if, if, if it turns out... We'll have out to see. I mean, like, it's a long way from, you know, here's a picture of what we think it might look like yes. to we actually have, you know, hardware that can yeah, some, achieve the desired reliability. Somebody draw me a starship and make it look a little different. Yeah, no problem, boss. Mm. You know, this, perfect. That's what we're building. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just like any other country, like there's an awful lot of dreamers in China and um, and all power to them, but they're also just as clever as anyone else at, at doing mock-ups and CGI and stuff like that. So you, you have to be paying attention to really kind of deduce whether the serious grey beards are involved and, and doing stuff and where the kids who've got some seed money are like, oh, yeah, we could build this maybe. So yeah. We'll just have to see what, what actually gets launched. Um, so then I guess, what do you think? And, you know, like it feels to me like, like Starship is such a dramatic change or even just this, this revolution of big launchers bringing launch costs down below $100 a kilo possibly down to 25 bucks a kilo like it's going to be kind of ridiculous and so you can imagine nice. the, the low-hang fruit mm. 42,000 starlinks uh anything nasa's ever wanted to send into space um a bunch of tourists maybe you send a few colonists on mars and then you bring them all home and they apologize to their families for ever wanting to make that journey um but do you run no, they, they work there and they're like this is sick this is yeah Recruit all my friends and family. Come out. Here oh, sure, and maybe. Yeah. Nice. yeah, yeah. Well, um, I I don't think so. I think they're going to be like. I wish I could see an ocean again. Oh, right, those are. Let's on make Earth. an ocean. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, just terraform Mars. Um, exactly. But but do you think that we run out of payloads at a certain point, or do we get? The, I mean, I'm sure someone was thinking like, you know, who's going to want to, you know, airplanes. I mean, there's only 10 things that people are ever going to want to fly on an airplane. Uh, we're only need mm. 10 of them. Um, do we, no, I mean, is there a things, need? Things to fly on, on airplanes came along real, really fast. Yeah, like, I know. I know. So immediately we... recognize utility. Yeah. Like, I just realized the other day, like it wasn't a commercially successful airliner until the DC-3, which flew in 1936, I think, um, or maybe 35, four months before the the Hindenburg actually did. So it's like this weird, like 
small overlap of like aluminium planes and aluminium or shiny, shiny airships. Um, and actually, the Hindenburg was the first commercially successful um, airship as well, um, for at least long distance uh, passenger transport, um, up until the the last flight. Yeah. Uh, but it had about a hundred hundred successful voyages before then. I had no um, idea. A hundred. Yeah. It, it was. It, did, it didn't do a Titanic. Yeah. Um, yeah. It. it uh, I think it operated for two and a half seasons or thereabouts. Um, it did flights between um, Germany and, and Newark and also um, Brazil. I would totally fly in a in a yeah, not a Hindenburg, but in a you know a blimp. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, I'd love no, that. I'd make a really really big one. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot recently as well. Um, and I think if you say, well, the only thing that can go in a rocket is a um, a JPL developed Mars rover that costs three billion dollars to make, then um, pretty quickly you saturate demand. Um, but I think that um, we're highly likely to see that that um, there's a lot of induced demand, and in fact that the it, it's highly elastic, which is to say that uh, mod- mod- modest reductions in cost have a greatly increased um, demand of of, of flights, um, or, or I should say like um, a lot of business models that were previously marginal become possible and then get funded, um, and you know obviously like there's a lot of work here for capitalism to do in trying out ideas and spending money and training people up and developing ideas and trying things out. Um, but one of the things that I've been kind of pitching for a while is this idea that you should um, just dedicate a, a Falcon Heavy or a, or a Starship flight to every planet in every launch window. Like if a launch window comes around, a Starship's going, if it's empty, it goes anyway. You know, and then you just, it just like put stuff on it until it's full and then it off it goes. Right. And then that way you start thinking about uh, exploration programs of Venus. Mm-hmm. Who here has ever heard of Venus? You know, Mercury, uh, Venus, uh, you know, the Moon obviously will have uh, programs anyway. Uh, Mars and then the outer planets, um, various asteroids, whatever. Like we're basically talking about ten launches a year, mm-hmm. um, which the Falcon Heavy would be about one and a half billion dollars a year for all those flights, just for the transport, right. which is actually reasonably modest in the context of the sort of money that gets spent on right. on space exploration anyway. Um, and then all the different program scientists and uh, engineers and so on would be thinking about this in terms of a campaign, which is one of the things that made mm. the Mars exploration program at NASA so successful, is that there was always you know the next rover and the next helicopter and, and the next lander and the next orbiter to think about. And so all the uh, contractors and engineers and technologists and so on who are developing these instruments would be able to say, well, we'll, we'll fly this instrument now and then we'll have another one ready in four years for the next one and then another one that we'll, we'll, we'll propose another one. And so they're able to kind of build this like right. multi-generational expertise and really deliver mm. incredible uh, science and, and value for money. So what I'm saying is take that idea and turn it up to 11. Every single planet, every launch window, send 100 tons, no questions asked. And if you, if your mission, if your instrument is not ready, it's okay, it goes next year. Right. You know, like, doesn't matter. And if the rocket blows up, doesn't matter. You go next year. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you can, uh, 100 tons. You want to send 10 rovers, send 10 rovers. Yeah. Um, I, one of the problems that that's we're, really we're facing here is that, yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, one of the problems we're facing here is that uh, traditionally speaking, um, JPL has had a business model and much of NASA has had a business model where, where they do these big directed flagship missions that Congress says, go and put me a rover on Mars this decade. And they spend $3 billion and that helps to fund, you know, the 5,000 engineers and specialists and technologists and technicians and so on who are necessary to make something the size of an SUV that weighs less than one ton. So it like weighs about a third as much as an SUV. And it's got these absolutely incredible instruments and it's powered by plutonium and it has, you know, a laser beam eye and a helicopter out the side and it generates oxygen and it might have a X-ray spectrometer and a, um, mass spectrograph and all kinds of fancy stuff like that. Um, and essentially, you know, if you say, Hey, NASA, can you make me something that's a 10th as good for a 10th of money? You say, no, we don't get out of bed for less than, you know, X billion dollars to do these flagship missions. Um, and we can produce one ton per decade of flagship mission and it will cost you a billion dollars. And now we say, well, actually we're going to be launching a hundred tons a year. So that's a thousand tons a decade. And the cost of each launch is you know, say 10 million, hundred million dollars, something like that. So actually we want you to reduce the cost of what we're launching from a billion dollars per ton down to a million dollars per ton. Now a million dollars per tons is a thousand times less, but it's about the same cost as a Ferrari. So you say, well, like, how is it that Ferraris are so expensive compared to a Toyota Camry? And the answer is everything in a Ferrari is, you know, hand built and hand designed. And, you know, there's a hefty, you know, um, a profit margin on top of that, but everything is kind of hand tweaked and hand you know, machined as opposed to being mass produced by a robot. Um, 
yeah, so how do you get from a million dollars a ton to a billion dollars a ton? Well, you say, well, every time we go and build a Ferrari, we're actually going to burn up all our books, hire people who know nothing about building cars, and they have to research internal combustion and uh, oil and gas extraction from the crust from scratch. Right. Um, it's kind of the sort of money we're talking here. And, and that's actually a real problem. And I'm, I'm not convinced that, that NASA as a whole has really come to terms with this. Um, I'd say it's not guaranteed, but it's a high percentage probability at this point of being at the point where its business model evolves and it has to be able to produce quality science instruments and vehicles for a million dollars a ton instead of a billion dollars a ton mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and to send them all. And so like that's a higher cadence of production and it's a lower unit cost. Um, and it just means like the way of building these things yeah. looks a lot a lot more like a Ferrari factory, really, frankly, than than a um, than JPL for all its uh, yeah. amazing. You know, yeah, no, and I've definitely thought about that. That that if you do bring the launch down, launch costs down, you bring the launch cadence up, then you have to move towards some kind of basic platform that you then connect all of your various instruments on top of but you've got a very standard bus you've got a very standard propulsion system <clears throat> uh solar panels if it's going to be in the inner solar system an rtg if you're in the outer solar system and then you mix and match the kinds of scientific instruments that you're going to want but it's a very known machine that then gets iterated on every every couple of years it's interesting to yeah, me yeah for that sure so you can you can imagine having a Mars rover, but but instead you have a production line of them, and you're always building one for the next launch yeah. window, or or ten for the next launch window. And you know, there's a big high bay at JPL. I don't see any reason why you couldn't have ten rovers under construction at any one time. You just have to have common tooling and build something more than once, which is you know they're currently allergic to. Um, the yeah, I think I think you know one of one of the really attractive things about this is that is that instead of having to have you know a few hundred mechanical engineers spend all their time and effort trying to work out how to make this thing and shaving off tenths of a gram everywhere, right? Like the rover's a ton, so tenths of a gram is seven orders of magnitude less than that, and that's kind of where they're tracking masses. Um, instead, you can devote all that engineering ability, which in any organization is a finite resource, to doing other things. Mm-hmm. Like you could improving cost, not caring as much about mass, improving performance, improving cadence, improving you know, reliability, um, improving capabilities. And I think this is actually the place where a lot of commercial partners can come on board. So again, like companies like Caterpillar, um, Halliburton, uh, uh, Bechtel, other you know enormous professional engineering companies that typically uh, specialize at a slightly lower point when it comes to like the price point of what they're delivering. Still, well out of the price range of average consumers like you and me, Fraser. But like, but like they work for uh, commercial partners rather than governments who have you know, orders of magnitude more money and and different kind of requirements about what their things look like and how they feel and how they work. Uh, can come on board and say, well, actually, you know, for a million dollars a ton, we can actually. You know, start talking to you about how we go about building a, a bag of 293, which is like a 15,000 ton, you know, um, Jawa sand crawler with a giant bucket scoop on the front that is used in coal mining, <laughs> right. uh, and get it up on Mars and, and you know, do some serious mining up there. Um, because, you know, we just have to think about how we're sealing bearings and how we're managing ele- electrostatic discharge and reduced uh, fat, you know, um, a pressure environment and stuff like that. But it's, it's not... Um, it's not the sort of situation where you'd have to go and take a bunch of engineers who specialize in making earth moving equipment and say, okay, well, you know, forget everything you've ever known. Now we have to work with titanium, you know, or now we have to like, yeah, yeah we have to machine everything out of a, out of a cubic meter solid billet of aluminium to begin with. Uh, and so they can start thinking about, you know, oh, we water jet and weld stuff, you know, like, like normal people. Um, and I, this is one of the reasons that I think that, you know, reducing costs by a factor of 10 will increase activity by a factor of a hundred or more. Like, hmm. um, because there's, there's just, so much latent capacity um, across, you know, worldwide industry, but particularly in the United States, that can really address this market once it's opened, once it's available. Um, because, yeah, previously, no private business would be like, oh yes, we're going to, you know, n- say no large, very very large uh, logistics-focused business would be like, oh yes, and we're going to have a space division that specialises in in doing stuff, you know, at one one thousandth the speed and one thousand times the cost as the rest of the business. There's no synergy there. Um, so, oh, maybe there was in the past, but. Didn't Kellogg have a space division at one point? <laughs> I one have the, no idea. That's crazy. One of the breakfast cereal companies was involved yeah. in space at one point. Scott Manley has a video about it. Um, um, it'd be really, really cool to see that. I, and I, I think I think it's a really important thing for industry as well, in that you know it'll provide you know a way of taking engineers, like clever engineers, and, and spreading them throughout the industry and allowing them to do really cool stuff that they're strongly ideologically motivated to do, um, as opposed to what we're seeing right now, which is that. Elon basically gets his pick of the best engineers graduating, no questions asked, right. um, which is good for him. But, you know, I'm sure everyone else would like to have, uh, like to have a go as well. 
I, I do love this idea of a of a spaceport with a bunch of of starships with their mouths open like like humpback whales, you know, just yeah, exactly. waiting, you know, and there's just like a ramp and 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 engineers are just coming up and just parking their rover inside and you know, you've got uh all the Pluto folks just filling up the uh, the spacecraft with with various Pluto rovers and landers and hoppers and flyers and et cetera. And the Titan oh, yeah, for sure. helicopters and, and sailboats and zeppelins and the right. And you can just imagine that. And, and you know, if you're a, if you're a, a university and you want to build a, go ahead, there's room in the back. Right. And then it all just going to get disgorged. It, it's going to land. And then it's just all just going to pour out of this, this rocket onto the surface of, of Mars or Pluto or Titan or whatever. And, exactly. and well, we get launch window to Pluto every year. I mean, like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's only, it's, we get launch windows to most of the planets, um, the outer planets every year because earth laps them and the inner planets like two or four times a year. Cause they lap the earth. It's only Mars that we have to wait yeah. two years because we're so close in, in orbital, um, yeah. synodic. Uh, yeah. Period. Yeah. Like I think um, you've got but like... all, all the other ones you can go every year. practically. Yeah. And Venus every, I forget it was like, several months eight months or days. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 and and mercury similar so uh to the sun everywhere like just everywhere in you can go to the sun anytime you like you can go to uh, mercury four times a year well, you can, you can try. go to the moon i mean it's hard twice to a day get to if you want. yeah i guess so yeah <laughs> yeah I, I, it's a it's a it's a bold vision uh we'll talk in you know i'm sure we'll talk in a couple of years from now and sort of see how much of this is is starting to to play out but you're gonna have to code a lot faster if you're going to be supporting uh, multiple missions to many different uh, planets across the solar system. It's you know you're just you're you're making some more work for yourself. Is what I'm saying here. Oh, I'm, I mean that's why I get out of bed in the yeah. morning. It's, yeah, uh, for it. it's right. no problem. Casey, uh, uh, if people want to follow uh, what you're working on, um, where should they go? What's the best place to sort of keep track of the the ideas that are percolating in your mind? Um, I I post on Twitter pretty frequently. Um, I'm at, at CJ Handmer. That's uh, Charlie Juliet Hotel Alpha November Delta Mike at Coromeo. Um, and I have a blog, which is uh, blog.caseyhandmer.com. Yeah. Um, and the, and that's the blog a is. Place to start. Yeah, I want to stop you and sort of really emphasize how good your blog is and how. Um, you know, how much original thinking has been brought to bear on, and a lot of it is very counter to the current trade winds of the space fans. So, I mean, you're a space enthusiast, but you're also a bit of a countercultural space enthusiast as well. And I kind of appreciate that about the way you, you approach this and um, have offered a ton of original ideas that I, that I still, like every time you make a new post, I'm all over it. So um, oh, if, I'm very, very you, flattered to hear that. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. I really appreciate this sort of very original thinking and it's very entertaining and you make a, you know, a lot of strong cases that have resonated with me um, for the years since I sort of came across your work in the first place and have sort of influenced my, my, a, a much more, um, a more realistic, I think, look at, at which things are, are going to work. And, you know, on the one hand, the things that are really going to take off when we're dramatically underestimating how much of an impact this is going to have. And then on the other hand, the stuff that everyone thinks is going to be big is probably not going to be big. So uh, yeah. I appreciate it. I've had a few, a few lucky guesses there, actually. Yeah. I was just looking back at, at what, I've, what I've done over the last um, couple of years. I think I called it with the Starlink blog yeah. early on, which, which I pat myself on the back, right? But I also benefit a lot from from readers, um, especially ones who jump on it straight away, being like, yeah. oh, you, you fluff this, you, know, you mess this up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, fix, yeah, fix, yeah. fix, no, we'll never know. Um, and, uh, and the thing is, like, the whole reason I write the blog is that I'm trying to promote um, a kind of an ideal or a concept of how discussions in space could be made. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really, a lot of the subcultures in space are very much, um, you know, slightly walled gardens or, or, or kind of uh, appeals to authority or, mm -hmm. or just like, thinking that it's less first principles and less rigorous than I would like. Um, and I feel like if I lead by example and I yeah. talk about things in a positive light uh, for the most part and, and, and really kind of show my working yeah. that, um, that I can do that. And then if people are like, I don't understand this, you seem to just pull this out of your ass. I'm like, okay, I'll write another blog on that. You know, like right. you know, actually right. do the math. Yeah. Um, you asked for it. Um, <laughs> here's a graph. Here's another graph. Yeah. Um, well, but I think it's great. I mean, I think that we, we, ha we're at a time now where, more people need to understand the nuances. Like it's, we can't just get excited about 
about people going to the moon or people flying to space. Like it's time to understand the costs, the benefits, the risks, the and what the future holds because it's going to start having an impact on our lives. And I think that's that's the 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 role that you're starting to play is like you know, it's just sort of grabbing people and shaking them and saying, take this stuff seriously. Here's, here's, here's how it's probably going to play out. And I, and I think it's really fun. So I put a link to the blog in the show notes. Um, but definitely check out, uh, Casey's blog. And, uh, you know, if you ever decide to do like a podcast or anything, I think people would, uh, would love it. So, uh, but keep, I'm uh, just keep a thinking. podcast leech. I just go on your show. Yeah, things, exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks Casey. And I'm sure we'll talk in a couple more years as more of your predictions come hauntingly true. Or wrong, either way. I don't or know. the wrong, yeah, sure, either way, yeah. All right, thanks a lot, man. Cheers. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I'm ending the stream.